Welcome back, friends. So over the past weeks, we've been covering Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus' teaching, his Sermon on the Mount. And we began with a clever and memorable introduction. You've heard it said A, but I tell you B. You've heard it said C, but I tell you D. And so on through nine clever, memorable, counterintuitive statements that really got people's attention and had them focused on him. And then he moved into the body of his teaching. Six propositions that exceed the law. You've heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for porneia is the Greek word, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said by people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you've made. But I tell you, don't make oaths at all, not swearing by heaven or God or anything. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be utterly transparent. No exaggeration, no need to make false claims about your, your, your moral courage. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. And then you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, there are six propositions that exceed the law indeed. And we looked into the very heart of those propositions. Murder, we learned, is the final act in a sequence of events that begins with anger that congeals into hatred that then manifests itself in the action of murder. Likewise, with adultery. No one wakes up in the morning and says, gee, I think I'll commit adultery today. No, it begins with an innocent flirtation and it moves step by step inexorably to where you know it's going. And that's how these statements, these propositions, operate. Jesus is not looking simply at the law, but the inner workings of the law, how the law operates within each category. Just brilliant teaching. Six propositions that exceed the law. And then we move to six concrete actions to implement the law, beginning with the three devotional pillars of Judaism, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. So don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust destroys and moths destroy. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That is, have a proper perspective. We're on a pilgrimage of life. We all step onto the stage of life 
with our birth. We walk across that stage in our 70 or 80 or maybe 90 years, and then we step off the stage. In the context of eternity, this life that we're living now is just the blink of an eye. So put your actions in proper perspective, in an eternal perspective. And for goodness sakes, don't worry about things, because worrying won't change anything. Only action will change things, and that is up to you. Worrying, anxiety, stress shortens your life. It doesn't lengthen it. So Jesus said, in effect, chill out, dude. This life is a brief time. Live this life with eternity in mind, where you came from and where you're going to. And finally, Jesus moves on to a call to action. So what are you going to do about all this? Well, here's some practical advice, chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. From the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So if you put yourself in that eternal perspective, and you begin living your life from that point of view, you have no right to turn and look at others, point a finger at them, and criticize them. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, oh, here, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a two-by-four sticking out of yours? You hypocrite. And that's the most scathing comment that Jesus has to make about anybody. You hypocrite. The Greek word is hypocrites. It's the word for an actor, someone who's pretending to be someone they're not. If you're authentic, you don't need to pretend about anything. Simply be yourself, living your life from an eternal perspective and being gracious and kind to others. Don't try to force things on them. Don't give dogs what is sacred and throw your pearls to pigs. What will, what will people do with that kind of self-righteous action? They'll turn and tear you to pieces. And then he continues, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For anyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be open. If you want to move from the world into the family of God and live life as an adopted son or daughter of God with Christ as your brother, all you need to do is ask. God will not lock the door. When Paul writes to young Timothy, he says God wants all people to be saved, not just a select few. So anyone who asks will receive an answer. After all, which of you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or for a fish, would give him a snake? So if you, though you are evil, you are born in that condition of sin, 
If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God always answers prayer. And he answers prayer in the context of eternity. He always answers prayer. Sometimes the answer is no. He knows what's better for us. We might not see it, but he does. So in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. That is, live your life from that eternal perspective, treating people the way you would like to be treated. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule. It didn't originate with Jesus. It's been around for a long time. This is indeed treasured wisdom. So enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Now, many people have a problem with this. Enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate? Oh, God made that that path and that gate very narrow. Only a few people can squeeze on through it. While you get to heaven, you'll find hardly anybody there, only the, the greatest of the saints. But no. As Paul wrote to Timothy, God wants all people to be saved. So why is the path narrow? Why is the gate narrow? Wide is the gate and broad the road that leads to destruction. Many go through it. So why do you have a wide path and a narrow path? Well, in my life, I spent a lot of time on hikes, a lot of time in the mountains. You know, my son Adam and I took a uh, alpine mountaineering course from the American Alpine Institute in Bellevue, Washington. And we spent a week living on a glacier and learning mountaineering skills, rope skills and rescue skills. It was a great time that we had together. And then that really got us into hiking and mountaineering. We've hiked all over. We've hiked the Grand Canyon. Uh, we've hiked the Sierras. Uh, we've climbed mountains in the, in, in, the, in the west here, in the Rocky Mountain area. Uh, we've climbed in Africa. We climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. And I found in the years of hiking that when you're on a popular route, the, the path, the trails, get really wide because a whole lot of people walk on them. We walked the Camino de Santiago not long ago. The most popular route begins in southern France, goes over the Pyrenees and west across northern Spain to Santiago de Compostelo. Well, that's a popular route indeed. And when we were walking that route, even in the most remote areas, we would see 15, 20 people on the trail. And that trail was beaten up and wide, and people walked on the edges, and it was a wide trail. And then we walked other routes. We walked the Portuguese route from northern Portugal north to Santiago. We walked the Silver Route diagonally across Spain. 
And those lesser routes were absolutely beautiful because not many people were on the trail. If you're going to walk the Camino de Santiago, I, I suggest that you walk the Portuguese route. It was just absolutely gorgeous. And during the whole walk, we saw, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 people in total. Whole days would pass and we wouldn't see anyone else. Beautiful. And the path was narrow. The French route, crowded as a Super Bowl Sunday. Well, why? Because a lot of people walk that path and it gets wide. But the more obscure trails were narrow and quite beautiful. Now, watch out for false prophets. They'll come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You know, again, if you're looking to, to live a life in Christ, to step into the family of God, there'll be a lot of people out there to give you advice. And a lot of them for very self-serving reasons. A lot of them to control you. A lot of them to wield their authority over you. False prophets. That is, people who are just making stuff up. And how do you know? Well, when Paul was in Troas, he said to the, he said while he was there and he was teaching in Troas, that's Dr. Luke's hometown, uh, he said, you know, the Bereans in northern Greece of today were more noble than the Thessalonians. Now, Thessaloniki is a big city. It's the second largest city in Greece, Macedonia of Paul's day. But Berea was a tiny little village, a small city. But why were the people in Berea more noble than those in, the, in Thessaloniki? Because they checked the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's the benchmark of truth. So if you have a friend, if you have a relative, if you have a religious leader who says something that you, you don't think is quite right, how do you know? How do you fact check it? Open your Bibles. Check the scriptures every day to see if what they say is true. Scripture is the word of God. True, written by people. It's a massive literary work. And what we do in our classes is study verse by verse, Genesis all the way through Revelation, over seven years. We become familiar with it, intimate with it. And when you hear other people talking about things of God, about living a life in Christ, if it doesn't, if it's off key, if it doesn't resonate properly with Scripture, the red flags should go up. So watch out for those false prophets and test them according to the word. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. 
So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So, watch their actions. As an old preacher of the early 20th century once said, don't read people's tracts, the little pamphlets on religious topics. Look at their tracks and how they walk this life. I love the Bible, and you, you all know that. and You do too, or you wouldn't be here listening. But it's nice to have a, a, a beautiful leather-bound Bible, Moroccan leather. Oh, it feels so good. It feels so good. But that's, it is nice. It feels good. You may have a relationship with that book. But more importantly, live it out. You know, we put leather on our Bibles. It's better to put shoe leather on our Bibles and walk it into the world. Now, Jesus continues, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that final day, that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, Remember, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. But, I, I, but I, here I was teaching the Bible all those years. Why? Was it for selfish reasons? For self-aggrandizement? To appear to be righteous and religious and holy? To appear to be a scholar? Or was I doing it for Christ? And I've often thought about that. I've brought it up in class on many an occasion. You know, we live a life in Christ. We at least try to do so. But what's the motive for doing so? Is it a reward? Is it well, if I keep the commandments, if I live according to the gospel message, if I live by grace through faith, then I'll have eternal life. I'll be rewarded. But if I don't, oh, it'll be pretty bad there in Dante's Inferno. Nine circles, each one progressively worse, filled with sinners. Oh, don't want to go there. Is that why? You have a relationship with God? Is that why you have a relationship with Christ? For what you get in the end? You know, I'll be real honest with you, and I've, I've said this in class, and it often shocks people. But, you know, when we die, I have the thoughts about that in my own mind, what it will be like. But when we die, one of two things can happen. Either... It's simply like the light switch going off. You're here today and gone the next. What's on the other side? Absolutely nothing. Zero. Nada. Or we take our last breath and we move into eternity, into the presence of God. That's our two options. 
and have said, you know, in many ways, I'm indifferent. Because if it's the first, it won't really matter because I'll be dead and won't know it. (laughs) But if it's the latter, it opens an eternal vista. So we're to love God. We're to love Christ. Not for what we get, not for a reward, but for who they are. When you fall in love with a person, are you falling in love with them for what they're going to give you? Or do you fall in love with them for who they are? If it's the former, you've got a difficult future ahead of you. If you marry so-and-so because they have a a glamorous career or money or an important family, and you want to be part of that, okay, go for it. It won't be a happy life, that's for sure. But if you truly love someone, and you love them from the depths of your heart for who they are, That's a much more solid foundation for a long-time, lifelong relationship. And the same thing is true with God. You know, it's important to think of salvation not as a reward or or the opposite, punishment. But uh, but no, it's a relationship. A relationship based and rooted in love. Love for that other person who loves you beyond anything you can imagine. So therefore, Jesus continues, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that is, nice to have a leather-bound Bible, how about putting shoe leather on it? You have faith, great. As James will say, you say you have faith, good, I'm proud of you. Show me the action, show me the results. Because a genuine saving faith will always, 100% of the time, manifest itself in a life of active love. When you step positionally from the world into the family of God, you want to live a life, as Paul says in Ephesians, worthy of the calling you've received, a life that makes God proud of you. Not for what you get, but for the nature of the relationship. So everyone who hears these words and puts them into action It's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, and yet didn't fall because it had its foundation on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a very foolish person who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell down with a great crash. Well, again, what's the nature of your relationship with God? What's the motive for your relationship with God? And if you have the correct motive, that of loving him as he loves you, and you in turn loving others as Christ loves us, That's a pretty solid foundation. You know, you move through life and you're going to have good times and you're going to have bad times. I've had plenty of both, that's for sure. But 
if we build that house on rock, on a proper motive for a relationship with God through Christ, one rooted and built upon love, not upon reward and punishment, not upon wanting something or being afraid of getting something, but for who they are. And if you build your life on that, the winds will come, the bad times will come, you know, a, a year of COVID unemployment. But okay, as Jesus said earlier, don't worry. You, know, you, you, you can't add a single day to your life by worrying about it. Focus on the relationship. Focus on the relationship. Deepen it. Strengthen it. And have it emerge from the right motive. Well, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He didn't put out a proposition and debate the various aspects of it. He let his yes be yes and his no be no. He taught with authority, not brutally, not aggressively, but I wouldn't you love to have been there, seated on the Mount of Olives in that natural amphitheater? Jesus down on the, down the hill a bit, seated, and you looking across the Sea of Galilee over to the Golan Heights, feeling the breeze blowing off the Mediterranean, coming through the Arbel Pass, hearing every word he said as clear as crystal. That natural amphitheater with acoustics like the Disney Center in Los Angeles. And when he spoke... People were riveted. They hung on every word. He taught with authority and not as their teachers of the law. What a great conclusion to this Sermon on the Mount. My, it's rightfully one of the greatest teachings ever given. And Jesus will use it again. Over in Luke, we have the Sermon on the Plain, which is an abbreviated version of of this teaching. You know, I know as a teacher, I've been doing this for a long time. 28 years at UCLA, over 30 years with Logos. And, uh, you know, teaching is a wonderful thing. And having, having students listen and engaging, and and that's what Jesus did. People engaged with him. He engaged with them. He taught as one who had authority, not an also-ran teacher. I just love that. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Next time on Wednesday, we'll move right along into chapter 8, And we'll meet some other people here, people that I think were seated on that Mount of Beatitudes and heard the teaching that Jesus made. Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And when you have a teaching that good, you pull it out and adapt it to your audience and your time frame. Jesus did that in Luke, and I'll bet 204 towns and villages in Galilee, he probably had 200 200 and some versions of the Sermon on the Mount that he could just pull out as needed. Great teaching. 
All right. Thank you for being here, folks. I look forward to us together every week as we move along now through the year. Okay, bye-bye now.